0: I'm April Stearns, the founder and editor of Wildfire Magazine and the host of this podcast. Before we jump into today's episode, I want to ask you a question. Are you on my email list? The Wildfire Newsletter is a great place to get all the wildfire-related goods, from the latest podcast episodes to info on our free pop-up writing workshop series to submission guidelines and issue details for upcoming issues of Wildfire Magazine. I also often share stories from my own survivorship there. So pop over to wildfirecommunity.org and add your name and email to the list. All right, here we go with today's episode. As I've mentioned here on The Burn before, as well as on my Instagram, this year is a big one for me. On March 12th, it had officially been 10 years since my stage 3C breast cancer diagnosis. All those years ago, it was so hard to picture making it to 2022. I thought if I live this long, if I live to this year, I'd either be celebrating so hard hello my ties, in an infinity pool in Kauai overlooking the ocean, or maybe I'd barely even remember my cancer fighting year. Maybe the doctors would be right. Cancer would just be a little detour, a little speed bump in my life, barely worth remembering. The reality is I'm discovering that this milestone is a multi-layered ball of yarn with a lot of hidden knots, not unlike survivorship itself. The traditional gift for a 10-year anniversary is tin or aluminum. The internet says this symbolizes strength and resilience. Resilience feels like the right word to describe survivorship that spans a decade now, because I'm here to tell you these years sure have not been without their difficulties. Don't misunderstand me. I'm so grateful for all the time I've had, the people I've met along the way, the work I've been able to do to make the experience of breast cancer a little better for others. And, well, there have been a lot of tears too. I'm grieving so hard for all that cancer took for me over these years, for the scars on my marriage, for the son I never had, for all the friends lost to metastatic breast cancer, for the trauma of it all. But the biggest emotion I'm feeling right now is gratitude for all of you for being in the fire with me. 10 years is complex. My guest today knows that too. She was diagnosed in 2010 and has also experienced many losses, big and small, along the way. Some of the tiniest losses represent the biggest shifts too, as you'll soon hear in her story. My guest today is Lori Hessen-Pomerantz. Lori is also a long-term survivor, as I said. She was 42 when she was diagnosed with stage 2 breast cancer that was both ductal and lobular. That was in 2010. Today, Lori lives in San Francisco, where she is a psychotherapist, as well as an educator and advocate for cleaning up the beauty industry. She and her husband have been married for more than 20 years now, and they have an adult son. Today, Lori's here to read a piece that she wrote for Wildfire Magazine's 2021 Body Issue. This was an issue in which we talked about body image as well as physical body changes brought about by our breast cancer. Hey, Lori, welcome to The Burn. Hey, April. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. I'm so glad you're here. You are reading a piece today that you wrote called The Day My Nipple Fell Off. I love the title. Can't wait for your story. After you read, we will chat. And everyone listening, stay tuned to the end for our writing prompt inspired by today's discussion with Lori. All right, Lori, I'll let you take it away.
1: So this is my story, The Day My Nipple Fell Off. So many bizarre, unexpected, and undignified things happen once one hops on board one of the crappiest rides in the amusement park of life, the cancer roller coaster. It will make you scream, want to puke, turn you upside down, and if you're very lucky, land you back to somewhere close to where you started, feeling jostled and lucky to have survived. When my total babe of a surgeon Explained that my mastectomy would be skin and nipple sparing, I thought I'd hit the jackpot on breast cancer. I wouldn't have a diagonal scar across my chest where my breast once was, leaving a large, tender gash in its place. I would retain a semblance of a real breast. Surgery would involve removing the tumorous breast by opening it from the underside, lifting it up, and scooping everything out. I imagined it like a big melon balling operation. Keeping my skin and nipple intact, my gorgeous surgeon would burrow under my pectoral muscle and put in a tissue expander. In my mind, I thought of all the chickens whose breast skin I'd lifted to stuff with herb butter. I tried to console myself with this thought, as if he was just tucking some herb butter under my skin, not pulling up my pectoral muscles. He would inject with blue saline every week until I was filled, like a balloon about to pop. My plastic surgeon and his lively, fabulous nurse practitioner would stretch my pectoral muscles over many months. Once the space, one not meant to have anything under it, was stretched enough, there would be room for a lovely, squishy silicone sphere to eventually be placed in its stead. As the pièce de résistance, when he put in the implant, he would also lift and reduce my other breast for a nice matching pair. Bam, a hot new rack. Although I'd have always loved my breasts before, I had to admit that the aesthetics had taken a beating since motherhood. The new boobs would be my consolation prize for breast cancer and the antidote to post-nursing droopers. Tautic is the medical term for droopy boobs. Did you know that? It was rather depressing when my plastic surgeon referred to my tautic breasts, but I tried to appreciate the silver lining of learning a new vocabulary word. What I never expected is that my nipple-sparing mastectomy would not, in fact, spare my nipple, and that I would become one of the small percentage of women who experience nipple necrosis after a mastectomy. Nipple necrosis. Dead nipple. shrivelly, dead, dried-up, old nipple. No blood flow. Connection to circulation severed. The nipple withers on the vine like forgotten grapes like the stump on a baby's umbilical cord, and falls off. After my surgery, my nipple was swaddled in gauze and balms to help it heal. It was normal that it looked traumatized. I had just had a mastectomy after all. However, at the post-op appointment, a month or so after surgery, my nurse was concerned that the healing wasn't happening and that things were going in a downhill direction for my nipple, although my nipple was no longer pointing downhill. We decided that I'd keep my battle-weary little eraser nub wrapped and protected while we waited to see if the blood flow returned. Things weren't looking hopeful, though, as my nipple went from a high beam to something that looked more like an old mosquito bite scab. My nipple was deflating and dying with each passing day until it finally became clear that it would not miraculously rejuvenate. The only thing left to do was just to wait for it to fall off. The mere thought of my nipple drying up and falling off had me in a state of pre-traumatic stress. I was a wreck. I imagined how much it would hurt when it finally came off and how metaphoric and heartbreaking it felt that the very nipple that had fed and nourished my son from my abundantly milky left breast was dying. For a full three months, I wore a gauze patch inside my bra protecting my vulnerable, crusty nipple from snagging and ripping off. I was desperately trying to postpone the inevitable. I believed that somehow, if I just kept my nipple protected, it wouldn't jump ship. One day during this bizarre and emotional time as I catastrophized about my impending loss, my seven-year-old son came home from his after-school program with a burning question. What does motherfucker mean? Jack asked with his head cocked in curiosity. "'Oh, wow, that's a really bad put-down, Jack. "'You would never want to call someone that. "'It's a very mean word. "'Where did you hear it?' I asked in my most innocuous Columbo tone, "'trying to conceal my mortification. "'I heard it in aftercare today. "'Some of the kids were having a swearing contest.' "'He paused. "'I could tell his mind was hard at work on something. "'How come no one says fatherfucker? "'I couldn't muster anything better than, "'That's a great question, buddy.' He drifted off into distraction, and I went to my room and sobbed. My tiny baby, who had nuzzled against my now-vanished breast, who had drunk from the faucet of my now-withering nipple, was growing up and hearing swear words and beginning to contemplate what the fuck a father fucker would be. It was just too much, too soon. My baby becoming a teenager, a man, his old cancerous mother, no longer needed to feed and nourish him. The nipple became a symbol of the death of innocence, of the severing of the mother-child connection, as I began torturing myself with the inevitability of my child leaving home one day. Sure, that day was at least 11 years away, but I experienced the pain of it as if it was happening that very night right after dessert. My nipple was necrotic, and I was neurotic. I had to flop out on my bed and just howl with grief. At my next doctor's appointment... My nurse delivered the unfortunate news that there was simply no way that my nipple was going to recover and that I needed to start leaving it uncovered while I slept so it would dry up and completely fall off. I tortured myself with the thoughts of my nipple snagging on my blanket or my jammies and ripping off. I thought of the waves of pain that would grip me when it happened. I needed sleeping pills to knock myself out and be able to rest. I slept in the softest t-shirt I have the one with the holes in it that I've been wearing since high school. I continued to cover my nipple with gauze by day to protect it from friction in my bra. One morning, maybe a week into the sleeping without gauze routine, I woke up and started to get dressed. When I got ready to put on my bra, I looked down and saw that my nipple was gone. Gone. It had fallen off in my sleep. Frantically, I searched the bed. Not sure what I thought I'd do when I found it, It wasn't on the sheets. It wasn't stuck to the inside of my t-shirt. I combed the carpet, which is rather scab-covered now that I think of it, and the nipple was nowhere to be found. It had vanished. I hurled blankets every which way, to no avail. My left nipple was MIA. On the one hand, I was hugely relieved that there was no pain, and in fact, that the dreaded event had passed without so much as a wrinkle in my sleep. On the other I was utterly mystified that my nipple had gone missing. Dressed and ready for the day, I headed out. While we were all gone to work and to school and chemotherapy, our house cleaner came for her monthly visit. Coming home to a tidied house and a freshly made bed was a real treat, until it, it dawned on me that my nipple had probably gone through the washing machine with the sheets or taken up residence in our vacuum bag. Things turned from terrifying to comic for me with this realization. I'm thinking that there aren't many housekeepers who have vacuumed up their client's nipples. When Jack was a baby and his umbilical cord stump dried up and fell off, I kept it. It sat on my nightstand, that crusty stump of hard, desiccated tissue. I was attached to it because it was the last fleshy fragment of what had connected my son and me to each other. I wasn't ready to let it go. One day, however, when I headed off with the baby for the day, the same monthly housekeeper came. She cleaned all the surfaces, including my nightstand, and threw away the stump. I came home and it was gone. The newly uncluttered, well-dusted nightstand was lovely, but Jack's umbilical cord stump was gone. When a friend from high school came over later that night to meet my baby for the first time, I told her what had happened. She wasn't a mom yet and said, Ew, you were keeping it? That's sick, my friend. I wasn't sure what I thought I'd do with that old stump or with that old nipple, but somehow I didn't want them to just go out with the trash. Compost, at least? This body of mine has been through hell and back on the cancer ride. My breast was removed. My nipple died and fell off. My areola peeled off with radiation. I had a bald head from chemo and a bald breast, too like a moonscape without the craters. Far from it, it was stretched out and overexpanded with saline to get me all plump and ready for the silicone. I look at photos now of my bulging naked breast and it looks like I was smuggling a bowling ball under my pectoral wall. Herb butter would have been much gentler. Though today, as a vegan, even that seems terribly problematic. It was nine Christmases ago that I went in to get my silicone implant and my reduction and lift. All I wanted for Christmas were my two front teats. It was not to be, however. A series of complications, infections, and the lingering trauma of radiation left me unable to heal. After three hospitalizations and 18 days spent as an inpatient, the breast implant had to come out. Now, rather than a smooth moonscape full of saline, I have what looks more like the sight of a bomb blast. A deep crater remains. Where my breast once was, where my implant once filled in as a proxy. All that is left is the skin from that fallaciously named skin and nipple sparing mastectomy. That spared skin now adheres to my chest wall in a wrinkly mess that looks like an elephant's ankle, in a deep concavity that used to be my beautiful breast. It's ironic that as I look back, I would have much preferred the thing I once feared most, having no breast and a neat, clean diagonal scar to what I am left with now.
0: Mm, Lori, thank you so much for that. That was beautiful and humorous and everything in between. Thank you. So we are going to take a quick break here and let Lori catch her breath and hear a testimonial. And when we come back, we will chat.
1: Hi, my name is Anna Krollman, and I was diagnosed with breast cancer at age 27. I was a newlywed ready to start my life and here came the big C. Now, it was a few years into dealing with my treatment and survivorship that I met April and learned about the Wildfire magazine. I then, in the years that followed, would have many opportunities to both read Wildfire magazine, write for Wildfire magazine, and even share my story on the podcast. They have been been so amazing in terms of helping me feel less alone, giving me a space to share my story and my unique struggles regarding mental health, fertility, and trauma related to cancer. And I'm just so grateful for the community that Wildfire has created for myself and all the women that will come beyond me.
0: All right. Thank you so much for the love, Anna. Welcome back, everyone. And Lori, thank you so much again for your powerful writing.
1: Thank you, April.
0: Thank you for being here. So let's get into it. Let's chat. So it's been quite a while since you wrote this story. Now. Um, I wonder if you could just begin there and give us an update. I especially I'm wondering if that last line, you know, maybe having some regrets about some decisions you made along the way. I'm wondering if that still rings true and where you are today.
1: It does still ring true. Really, I look at my friends who had nice flat closure and it just looks um uh, it looks so it's beautiful to me. And I and I look at this concavity I have and I wish it looked beautiful to me. It doesn't. I mean, I'm 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 not going to be self-critical because I'm just so thankful to be here and healthy, but when I think about how scared I was of the aesthetics of a flat closure, I wish I hadn't been I wish I hadn't been scared. And, and now when I meet women who are wondering about whether to go through reconstruction, I really, I really share my experience that reconstruction is is no cakewalk and, um, and the results aren't guaranteed either. And so for me, it was, you know, spending 18 days in the hospital away from my seven year old wasn't worth it to try and save that implant. I would have much rather been home and, you know, when you go through something like this, I think, um, of course, we all care about our body image and our self image and our sense of beauty. And but I, I think I was, I think I was more afraid than I needed to be. I, I wish I could have just embraced um, my new body as it was, rather than trying to um, manipulate it in some way that didn't even end up working out. And that caused a lot of pain and suffering and time away from family. So, you know, I have a prosthesis that I wear in my bra now. It's just fine. I just really, it's like the least of my concerns. I'm just, I'm just so thankful to be here. I don't, I just really don't even care anymore.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that perspective. And as you were talking, I was just thinking about all these little losses, all, all these Yeah. I mean, I can't think of another way to put it, but the grief of these, um, I want to kind of say micro losses, but what I'm really thinking is like the sub losses Mm -hmm. that come up after diagnosis that you didn't even know Mm -hmm. were on the plate, you know, or on the menu rather. And then then there you are, you know, the nipple, the implant, et cetera, the time. Mm -hmm. Right. So I want to ask you about, you know, you're, you're more than 10 years out, you're 12 years out mm-hmm. now, and I just want to talk to you about the legacy of writing. You know, um, I don't know if you were writing frequently during your experience or if you've written mostly retrospectively. Tell me the role that your stories play now in terms of um, a time that is that is that 12 years past and still evolving, you know, you're still living your survivorship and you still have stories occurring, but, but those stories that were so fresh, so raw back then, like, how do they, how do they sit with you now? Are you glad that you have them? Yeah. Tell me all about that. I love that question. And it's funny because I had,
1: I didn't write anything before I had cancer. And then Mm. during my treatment, I found, I found it really exhausting to uh, make and return phone calls. And so I started writing these really kind of detailed emails that I would just send out to all the people I cared about, um, about what was happening. And I found that, I mean, some of the experience of going through cancer and treatment is so insane that it's actually funny sometimes. And I developed this very dark sense of humor about some of the ridiculous things that were occurring inside the hospital, outside the hospital, with my body, and so I found that writing these emails became—it was almost like a form of journaling. And then, mm-hmm. when our dear friend and dearly departed um, survivor sister Erin Hyman was over one night, and she said, "I just want to put these, put our stories in a book," and so we said, "All right, let's let's do this thing." And we we ended up pulling together this anthology of young survivor stories, and I took. Some of my emails and ended up crafting them into stories for that book and then for the subsequent two anthologies and then for Wildfire. And so for me, looking at these stories, it, it is, it is, it does feel like a beautiful legacy because, first of all, you kind of forget so much of the nitty-gritty of what you went through. It all feels so massive when you're in it. And then with time, it it recedes. And I read these stories and it just takes me right back to where where I was and what we were experiencing. And I'm super grateful that it's recorded and that I have that as a touchstone to look back on as sort of a, as a reflection point for how far we've come and how much has changed. And just as a testament to resilience and a reminder of how much crap we can can handle that we never imagined we could handle it's just it's empowering honestly it feels empowering to have committed these experiences to writing and to be able to not only for me to be able to look back on them to be, to be able to share them with people i care about and um and i and i have people who reach out to me and say you know my friend just got diagnosed i'm going to send her i want to send her your stories or i want to send her the Bayes anthology or i want to send her wildfire and it feels so um i feel so grateful it, to be able to Have something from my experience be able to, I don't know, do something to communicate with people who have this up ahead. Um, I don't know whether it feels helpful or supportive or normalizing or helps people um, feel more free to express their own experience or to laugh at some of the absolute absurdity. I don't know, but I I just hope it makes a difference to somebody. I know it makes... difference for me to read other people's experiences. And I know it makes a difference for me to have um, gotten my own experiences out of my head and onto the page.
0: Mm -hmm. Oh, I think it makes a tremendous difference for all those reasons. And one of the things I love too is now, you know, through your writing um, of this story, um, especially we have this, you have this incredible snapshot of detail around a very emotionally charged time and you've slowed it down to 2 minutes you know we have you crawling around on the floor right looking for this nipple <laughs> i i'm i'm picturing you there right and and these are the things that after you know 5 years 10 years 12 years kind of just get um, I don't know, kind of just wrapped up in the overall like, oh yeah, that time that my nipple fell off. But when we write it, we can really remember all of the, all of the, um, all those little sensory details that I think are so, I don't know, it's a gift, mm-hmm. you know, Lori, I think this story is a gift to you and to everyone.
1: Thank you so much. It's true. Bringing, putting it yes. to words makes it visceral instead of, um, Vague or foggy or theoretical in your mind that you went through this. It brings you back to the moment, mm-hmm. brings you back to the
0: sensations,
1: to the visuals. right? Yeah. And it
0: gives it the weight, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, well, I love all of this. So today's writer and guest was Lori Palmerans. Her piece was called The Day My Nipple Fell Off from the June, July 2021 issue of Wildfire called Body. We do an annual body issue each summer. Lori, where can people find you or learn more about you online and read more of your writing? That's a good question. Geez.
1: Well, if you look up um, Bay Area Young Survivors Anthology on on Amazon, we have all of our anthologies there and I have my stories published in all three of those. I'm on Instagram at Lori Pommie L-A-U-R-I-E-P-O-M-M-I-E. Those are probably the best ways to be in touch or to read more of what I've written. If you search for me by name my writings will come up. Laurie hessen Pomerantz. There was a piece called How We Wound Up Topless that was uh, published by Salon magazine in 20 I don't know 11 I think
0: perfect well we will link to as much as we can in the show notes as well because the world needs your dark humor Ah. for sure so we will spread it around
1: thank you i'm really grateful for the chance to have been a guest on your podcast april thank you so much
0: thank you thank you Well, I'm April Stearns, and you've been listening to The Burn. The Burn's a production of Wildfire Magazine, where we share breast cancer stories from young women like you've never read or heard before. We also strive to inspire you to write your story like you've never written it before. Stay to the end for a writing prompt inspired by today's episode. Our producer is Bill Smith of Shoe Production, and our production assistant is Monica Haro. Want more on the life-changing transformation to be had from telling your breast cancer stories? Visit wildfirecommunity.org to find a copy of the issue shared in today's episode, to find our now 36 issues in the Wildfire Archives, to hop on our email list, and to take a writing workshop with me. There's no place on the planet like a Wildfire Writing Workshop, and I want you to experience it for yourself. Discover how to write your way back to yourself, write your way to reclaiming your body and your story, and don't forget to subscribe to The Burn and listen to it wherever you go. All right, here's your writing prompt. I want you to set your timer for eight minutes and write without stopping or editing yourself. The things I've lost to breast cancer and how I've honored them or need to honor them. So the things I've lost to breast cancer and how I've honored them or need to honor them. Eight minutes, write without stopping, see what needs to come out and where it will take you. Happy writing. Thanks for listening. Until next time, take good care.